Welcome to the All Souls Episcopal Parish in Berkeley's Sermon Podcast. Today is the second Sunday in Lent, and we're here from Dr. Scott McDougall as he preached from the lectionary, which this week was Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 38. As always, you can find more sermons or information about All Souls on our homepage, which is allsoulsparish.org. teach theology at the Church Divinity School of the Pacific, which is the Episcopal Seminary up there on the hill here in Berkeley. I promise that that is relevant to what I'm about to say. It's not some kind of flex, as if claiming to be a theologian is a flex. (laughs) But it's, it's Lent, and in light of the season, I thought it only appropriate to begin with a little confession. So here's my confession. It comes in two parts. Are you ready? Okay. All right. Part one. Part one. I confess that I really love theology. (laughs) I really love reading theology. I really love teaching theology. I really love thinking about theology. I really love doing theology. For me, theology is beautiful. And doing theology is prayer. Here's part two. I confess that when people suggest that maybe theology is only for people with PhDs or particularly pious church nerds or ordained people or people who want to make pronouncements on orthodoxy and heresy, I get a little sad. And I further confess that when people say that Christianity is about love and justice, and not about theology, rather than those two things being the same song in different keys, I get a little testy. (laughs) Now, of course, there are academic forms of doing theology and really complicated histories and arguments and vocabularies and techniques that can be employed for doing theology at especially advanced levels. And I admit, I like those things. But that's not all that theology is. Actually, it's not even primarily what theology is. Theology is actually a simple thing. Or rather, it's three very simple things. Theology is the attempt to better understand who God is, who we are, and how we should live in light of those realities. That's it. That's it. And because that's all that it is, Christians are actually always already doing theology. In fact, it's our responsibility to be doing theology, defined in the terms I just did, because it's not important for every Christian to be an academic theologian. It is, though, absolutely imperative that every Christian seeks to obtain a better understanding of who God is, who we are in light of God's identity, and what that means for the way we live. That's why I become quite annoyed when people speak as if theology is beyond ordinary believers' capability, rather than being something they are already doing every day, even when they're not aware of it. I've sometimes joked, but it's actually not a joke, that the constant refrain that theology is only for a special kind of person or is, or is likely irrelevant 
and is definitely too intimidating for an ordinary believer, is pretty much akin to telling girls that they can't do science or math. If we have realized that saying such a thing is outrageous and unacceptable where STEM education is concerned, given that science and math are complex, but certainly not beyond ordinary people's grasp, shouldn't we think it's equally outrageous and unacceptable to say that theology is beyond regular people? In the words of the noted Episcopal theologian, Frederick Harris Tomset, we are all theologians. That is especially true for laity. For those of us like me, firmly planted in the workaday world, who need to be especially attuned to how to live as Christians in a society that can make that very difficult. By the way, if you haven't read Frederick Harris Tomset's book, We Are Theologians, which is written especially for Episcopal laypeople, and it's easily obtainable, a classic, and I really encourage you to read it. We are all theologians. Okay, so that's my two-part Lenten confession for you. I have been brave in making a public confession of my love of theology and impatience with the belittlement of it and with people thinking that it's not for them, which it very much is, as I have seen here at All Souls, in buckets, by the way, with so many theologians here among you, most of whom would never think of themselves in that way. So, I've made a Lenten confession, and now it is time to maybe practice a little Lenten discipline. <laughs> Hold on to your seats. Remember what I said a minute ago. Work with me. I want today to hit you with a little theology and see what you make of it. Stay calm. <laughs> Don't panic. Everything's going to be fine. Tarry with the T word a while, all souls be brave. Now, let's do a little theology on the basis of today's texts. Who's with me? Come on, come on, come on. All right. Now, theology is best done as a conversation, so this is going to be a little artificial, but with that said, here we go. So, the first task, who is God? What do these texts say about who God is? about God's character, especially if we read them together as the lectionary wants us to do. Of course, there, there is no one answer here. There are many, many things these texts are telling us about God's identity. So we're just going to look at a few of them. First, God is the one who calls a people into existence through Abraham in order to reveal God's self to the world through the nation that will descend from him and Sarah. What this shows is that God stands in relationship not only to each of us individually, but in a specific kind of covenantal relationship to God's people as a nation, a community, a body. As Paul goes on in Romans to show, we who are Gentile Christians are part of that body by being grafted into the Jewish root established in Abraham and we are not to forget that. But we are part of a sprawling nation, a people dedicated to God, to which God has made promises, not for the benefit of that body alone, but for the whole world. The world that God made and that God loves. Second, 
As I just mentioned, God is a God of promise. But what promise? Ultimately, it is a promise of fruitfulness and life, especially in the face of what seems to be sterility and death. Jesus is depicted as stating this as clearly as can be in the gospel. I will die. I will live. Abraham and Sarah are pictured as elderly when God promises to make them the progenitor of nations, the ancestors of kings. Paul calls Abraham almost as good as dead on account of his age at the time of his calling. Yet, because God is the God of promise of flourishing and of life, Paul connects the way that God brings life out of this couple directly to the manner in which God brings life out of death and the resurrection of Christ. God, Paul says, is the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. God is the one who will not allow death, literal or figurative, bodily or spiritual, to have the last word. Somehow, in some way, there is a promise of flourishing and life from this God. Always flourishing and life. Okay, so what we can see thus far is that God is a God who enters into covenantal relationship, not only with individuals, but also, and maybe especially, with a body of faithful people who are the recipients of a promise of life, radical, improbable, excessive, unexpected life. That's theology, everybody. Isn't it awesome? <laughs> okay, let me check in. Anybody hurt? <laughs> Nobody's sprained a theological muscle? Great, okay. I didn't think so. So, if theology is first about who God is, secondly, it's about who we are. So, what are these texts telling us about who we are? Well, as the Genesis text tells us, we are recipients of God's call and the recipients of God's promise of life. Moreover, when we receive that call and accept that promise, we are remade. We have a new identity. We receive new names. We have died and have been reborn. The Christian expression of this, of course, is baptism. Think of the vows made during the baptismal rite. Baptism is accepting God's call to enter into a new way of being, a new way of related to God, to ourselves, to one another, and to the creation. We lose the identity we had, and we gain a new one. That is why we are said to have died with Christ and have been raised with him. No, to have been raised into him as the very members of the body of Christ, which is the church. Abram and Sarai were as good as dead. But when they accepted the promise of God, an unbelievable promise that must have seemed outrageous in its impossibility, 
perhaps as outrageous as being resurrected from the dead, they were renamed Abraham and Sarah, having received new life and a new reality in relationship to God, one that set them at the head of a nation of people dedicated to God, just as our baptisms usher us into a new corporate reality too. As the text from Romans makes clear, based on the story of Abraham in Genesis, who we are is the people who, as Paul puts it, hope against hope. God, I love that. Hope against hope in the radical divine promise of life in the face of what seems like nothing but death. For Paul and for us, the calling of Abraham and the resurrection of Christ both testify to the reliability of this promise. Paul wants us to see that we have good grounds for placing our trust in Christ and in God's promise. Still with me? Okay, so that's the who we are part. We're almost there. I see no one has passed out, which is awesome. I told you you could handle this. All right, so the last bit. Having looked at these texts to see what they say about who God is and who we are, now what do they say about how we might live in light of those realities? Well, we've already said that one of the things we should do is trust in the promises of God. This is easier said than done, of course, as poor Peter shows us. And it isn't always easy to see what it means to trust in the God of life in any one concrete circumstance. But this is part of our call as members of the community to whom God has made covenant promise. Almost certainly the clearest place to go for what it means to trust in the covenant promise in these texts is the gospel admonition for us to take up our cross and follow Jesus. It seems to me there is a particularly pointed phrase in this regard when Jesus says, those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, the good news, will save it. Now, there are certainly many poor interpretations of what is meant here, some of which can lead to all sorts of self-abuse, self-deception, and martyr complexes. These are anything but life-giving and have to do with anything but flourishing. The kind of loss of one's life that Jesus speaks of here has to do, I think, with the kind of loss of life that Abram and Sarai experienced. That is, the loss of a certain set of expectations around what their lives were supposed to look like and be when they answered the call of God. Or even the loss of life that Jesus faced in going to the cross, which is always a real possibility. But in both cases, the life that was lost was as nothing in light of the life that was gained. The life that the God of promise brought out of apparent death. Or in Jesus' case, actual death. We mirror this baptismally in the loss of life that leads to new life in Christ by being buried in the baptismal waters. And we live out this reality every day. Every time we trust in the promises of God and move through what looks like death only to find abundant life on the other side. Practically speaking, it's a really hard thing to face the fact that it isn't possible to describe or prescribe 
what being faithful to the promises of God will look like in a given circumstance. This lack of certainty is actually part of what taking up one's cross in order to follow Jesus of Nazareth consists of, ironically. However, the clearer we are about who God is, who we are, the better our discernment will be about the way we might live to make that determination. We made it. <laughs> so you did, we did some theology here, and everybody seems to have come through unscathed, which is great. So seriously, very seriously, if you are one of those who has thought of theology as something beyond you, or you have thought theology is irrelevant or an ivory tower discipline of navel gazing, or you tend to see it as something that you can't do and don't have much of an interest in doing, give it a try. See if it makes a difference. Who is God? Who are you? What will you do in response? Those are the questions that theology asks you to consider. How you live is your answer. It doesn't get much more practical or relevant than that. Amen.